This is an encore presentation to celebrate the life of Robert Felix, who passed away on June 10, 2021. Robert was a great thinker and writer, and his work is pertinent to today more than ever. He was a wonderful teacher and a great scientist. He knew years ago what many are just learning now. Robert was leaps ahead of most in his understanding of cosmic cycles and terrestrial effects, whose work both popularized these ideas and set the stage for many researchers to come. Thank you for everything, Robert. Our prayers are with you and your family. A new candle is lit in the In Memoriam section of our website. It was an honor to have you on Veritas. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight's special guest is Robert Felix, author of Not by Fire, but by Ice. And the focus of tonight's interview, Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, a True Origin of Species. Are you a supporter of the global warming campaign? Did you know that the planet's overall temperature has been dropping consistently? Many countries in Europe experienced a mini ice age recently, and the media was nowhere to be found. Robert Felix will be with us shortly. And how do you listen to the full interview, you ask? It's very simple. Become a member. Go to our website and click on the subscribe button, and you'll receive your login immediately. And we'll be able to experience everything we have to offer. And don't forget, visit our Veritas store, where you can find MMS, our futuristic metal-cased 8GB USB drives, for those of you who want to have it all but don't have the space or the time to download, all in CD audio quality. And to get in touch with me, it's very simple. Click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Immediately after the many major extinction events that Earth has experienced, thousands of new life forms appeared, with no previous evidence of them in the fossil record. This has happened many, many times. Remember Charles Darwin? He's the one who told us that evolution is a slow, slightly, and orderly process, plodding along so slowly that no one could hope to see it work in their lifetime. Darwin's theories of gradual evolution and natural selection are now regurgitated almost unthinkably the world over. That's too bad, because Darwin was wrong, says Robert Felix, who's coming up next. and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. 
Robert Felix, a former architect, became interested in the Ice Age cycle back in 1991. He spent the next eight and a half years full-time researching and writing about the coming Ice Age. He then concentrated on spreading the word. Robert's book, Not By Fire But By Ice, has achieved international acclaim with readers around the world. Today, Felix continues his research and is more firmly convinced than ever that the next Ice Age could begin any day now. In fact, he believes he has already begun. And to learn more about Robert Felix and his work, visit his website at iceagenow.com. And directly from Kirkland, Washington, I would like to welcome Robert Felix to Veritas for the first time. Hello, Mr. Felix, and welcome. How are you? Hi, Mel. Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. And may I call you Robert? Absolutely. Thank you. Well, first question is, how does an architect go from doing what you were doing to researching all these topics of Ice Age and magnetic reversals? Tell us more beyond what I read in your bio. <laughs> That's probably the toughest question you're going to ask me all day. <laughs> you know, I really can't answer that. In, uh, in 1991, I mean, it was many years ago, but... Um, I be, I was taking a writing course and and I wrote a little bit uh, a fiction uh, article about how the dinosaurs were killed. I you know it was just fiction. I thought well they they were killed by a meteor, and then I thought oh you know maybe I should just look it up and see what really did kill them, and lo and behold scientists said it was a meteor. So I thought oh well maybe I'll switch this over and make it into a uh, you know make it into nonfiction. And I started researching it and researching it. And I began to think, you know, I don't think it was a meteor. I think it was a magnetic reversal. And I got hooked. You know, I thought I could write a book in, <laughs> in maybe six months. I, if I'd had any idea it was going to take me eight years full time to research that thing and, and write about it, I probably wouldn't have done it. But now I'm really glad that I did. Now, we were glad that you did because th these are topics that come to mind all the time in our show. But Robert, many of our listeners know you from your book, Not by Fire, but by Ice. But I wanted to look into your new book, Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps. That is the, the what is the premise of this new book? Well, you remember Charles Darwin. Of course. Uh, he's the one who told us that evolution is a slow and, and stately and orderly process, that it, that it plods along so slowly that no one could hope to see it work in their lifetime. And, you know, we've been repeating Darwin's words now for, for almost unthinkingly for 150 years, but I think Darwin was wrong. With all, of my, with all of my research, the title of the book, Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps, that, that tells part of the story. And the subtitle, The True Origin of Species, I think begins to tell the rest of the story. Because, because what I've discovered in, in my research on the first book is, is that the arrival of new species on our planet correlates amazingly well with magnetic reversals. And so that, that's what the book is about. And I like that subtitle because it obviously it alludes to what we all suspected here. Uh, you know, Darwin talks about gradual evolution, but there have been extensions when X number of, of, of species are wiped out and the same number of species comes back, but totally different without any, any, any trace. Can you explain? Well, you, you're right. And, and, and not only without any trace, but it, it happens suddenly. In fact, that's the, the title of, of one of the chapters in Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps is suddenly because, because 
you know, the, the world just goes along, limps along for a while, and then all of a sudden uh, we have a, a, an evolutionary leap. And I don't think it's a coincidence that those evolutionary leaps occurred in sync with magnetic reversals. I, I don't, for instance, I don't think it was a coincidence that apes and humans branched apart about five million years ago at the end of Miocene at a magnetic reversal. I don't think it's just a coincidence that uh, Homo habilis appeared about two million years ago at a magnetic reversal, or that Australopithecus, that, that was an upright walking creature with a, a man-like jaw and an ape-like brain. I don't think it's a coincidence that it went extinct about one million years ago at a reversal, or that Peking Man, uh, or known as Java Man, appeared about 780,000 years ago, again at a magnetic reversal, or, or even the Neanderthals. The Neanderthal uh, suddenly appeared about 115,000 years ago at the Blake magnetic reversal, and then Wham, uh, it disappeared, went extinct at the, uh, at the uh, Lake Mungo magnetic reversal about 33,500 years ago. I, I just don't think, I don't see how all of those things can be a coincidence. Now, the question is, where did these new species come from then? Well, <laughs> uh, what I'm seeing is that, that during magnetic reversals is, is what happens is well, let me let me back up a little bit. There was a, like in the 1960s, there was a scientist called Robert Uffen, and Mr. Uffen proposed that uh, that during a magnetic reversal, that because because our magnetos magnetosphere protects us from the cosmic rays, that during a magnetic reversal, the Earth would lose its shielding. It would lose that magnetosphere for a while, and that would allow cosmic rays onto our planet, radioactive spewing uh, cosmic rays, and that those cosmic rays would lead to mutation. And at the time, in the 60s, you know, everybody was, was you know, they just kind of ignored often. But I think he was onto something. And I think that is what happens, is that we have all this radioactivity bathed on our planet and and. Boom, we've got a, we, we have mutations and new species appearance. Now, we're going to be disproving Darwin a lot, I suspect, in the next two hours. Let me ask you, if according to Darwin, species have evolved, why is it that, for example, sharks are almost identical today as they were 370 million years ago? Uh, you've read the book, haven't you? Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, that that is the question that I ask. Certainly, is that uh, because sharks during all of these three hundred and whatever million years are essentially still the same. However, you know, I think that uh, I think that a lot of new fish and new species probably quote evolved a beginning with them. I, I guess you could call it evolution in one way, is because you got to start with something. Those mutations came from somewhere, but the thing is, is that they happened overnight. Each each of those mutations, not not in a slow, gradual uh, way, the way Darwin talks about. You know, as I read your book, I, I come, something comes to mind. Are you familiar with the Akari insects? By the way, no, I'm not. Let me read something really quick. In 1837, Andrew Cross reported to the London Electrical Society concerning the accidental, spontaneous generation of life in the form of Acurus genus insects while he was conducting experiments on the formation of artificial crystals by means of prolonged exposure to weak electric current. Throughout numerous strict experiments under a wide variety of conditions, utterly 
inimical to life as we know it. The insects continue to manifest. Then another researcher, Michael Faraday, also reported to the Royal Institute that he had replicated the experiment. Soon afterwards, all notice of this phenomenon ceased to be reported. Here's an example of how insects just manifested, appeared with weak electric current, Robert. Oh, well, you know, I you're giving me goosebumps. I had not heard of this article. I, I hope you can email it to me. I would love to put it on my website. Absolutely. And when I heard of this story a year or two ago by, by a, a researcher with the name of John Lamb Lash, I, I had to go out there and research. And I thought this may have been maybe, you know, a bug or two you know, crossed the, the, the experiment, and, and, and but they actually replicated this experiment again and again, and they still appeared. So, when you're talking about species all of a sudden popping up when these reversals, and there's a lot of electricity that takes place and radiation, I wonder if in a larger scale, these Akari insects also can and provide with the same type of uh, occurrence, bigger, uh, you know, flora and fauna. Well, before we go on, is it a carry? Is that A K R R A A K A R I A C A R I A C A R I? If you Google anybody listening, if you Google a carry insects, you'll be able to to look at a lot of information on on how this happened over a hundred years ago. Oh, that is so exciting because Michael Faraday, of course, invented so many things to do with with the the magnetic field. Uh, yeah, during magnetic reversal, you know, well, going back to Faraday, Faraday is the one that, that uh, found that any time you have an electric field, you have a magnetic field. You, it's not possible to have one without the other. And so during what I see during a magnetic reversal uh, or a magnetic excursion, and, and we can get into that and the difference, but during a magnetic reversal or excursion is that sometimes the Earth's magnetic field uh, fluctuates strongly. It'll move partway south, it'll move partway back north, it'll move partway back south. And I am, I see no choice, but when that magnetic field is is fluctuating, that electric currents going through the Earth have to also be fluctuating. Because, uh, you know, there's always electric currents going through the Earth. They're called electro-telluric currents. But uh, I'm, I'm saying that during a magnetic reversal, you would have vast fluctuations. So why couldn't they contrib- contribute to the mutation? I, I'm agreeing with this, this paper without even having read it. You said it's John Van Lash? John Lamb Lash was Lamb the one. Lash. He was the one who actually prompted me to the, to the experiment. Okay, that's that is exciting news. And uh, all this reminds me of the whole what came first, the chicken or the egg, insects showing up out of nowhere. Do you subscribe to the panspermia theory that life has was seeded by passing meteors and could it be that these new species got seeded this way? Oh, I guess I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but I, I won't uh, I won't say it's wrong either. I guess you know that that is that chicken and egg thing because if it came from a passing meteor, then how did that passing meteor get that life? Uh, I I'm of the inclination to believe that um, that everything goes back to the magnetic re- reversals and to the electric forces throughout the universe. I, I'm of the belief that, that uh, our Earth 
began not not in the Big Bang theory, the way they talk about uh, four and a half billion years ago, but that that our Earth essentially began as a rotating magnetic field out in space, and that as it had uh, more and more. Uh, as it aligned with whatever it is that it aligns with and had these explosions that, that uh, matter was actually created in, in the sky and, and coalesced and, and eventually became our planet and that our planet is continuing to grow in that manner. And I keep imagining how in a magnetic reversal, a species just disappears and another one just Pops up, and again, I'm sounding like a broken record. But the question in my mind is how how was this new species transported here? How did it appear? And I guess this is a question we're going to be asking throughout the show. I've always wondered, Robert, a long, long time ago. Many of the species that live today existed, but much bigger. Insects and birds came uh, come to mind. To what do you attribute their size then? Was the Earth different in size, or or was gravity less? Well, uh, one of the things, I guess, is during the dinosaur age, CO2 levels were much, much, much higher than they are today. And, and uh, you know, I, uh, staying away from the global warming part here, I think that's, you know, CO2, it does become a plant food. And, and uh, uh, during those times of high CO2 levels, I think that the plants were able to grow tremendously faster, and, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe it affected uh, the animals, too, that, that they were able to grow more. At least they had a lot more food available for them. So I think that's part of it. And when a magnetic reversal occurs, is it immediate or is it gradual? By, well, before we even go there, maybe for – I imagine most of your listeners have probably heard you talk about magnetic reversals before. Sure. But for those who haven't, uh, a magnetic reversal is a time when – in the past when compasses would have pointed toward Antarctica instead of toward the Arctic. And this is not unusual. This is this is not theory. This is not something that I came up with. Uh, the geologic record shows that that our magnetic our magnetic field has probably been reversed for half of history. It's just that at this particular time, our compasses do point toward the Arctic. Uh, with that said, is that it looks like it happens quickly. By the way, one of the ways they found this is is that back in the 1960s, uh, when they were uh, when the military was towing magnetometers behind ships, they their magnetometers would point in one direction for 10 or 15 miles, and then their magnetometers would point in another direction, sometimes for 15 miles, sometimes for 25 miles, and it turns out that that this came from from basalt because the ocean floor if you get below the sediments that have been deposited there the ocean floor is entirely made of of lava or basalt and when that lava comes out of the earth it is so hot that it is it is non-magnetic but as it Cure, as it cools through the Curie temperature, it, it takes on the magnetic field of the day. 
And so uh, what had what had happened in previous times is is these uh, is this lava would pour out of cracks in the seafloor, out of rifts, and then move off in both directions away from the crack. And as it cooled, it would take on the magnetic field of the day. Uh, so they there are actually these stripes on the ocean floor completely covering the ocean floor. And that's how they realized – one of the ways they realized that these magnetic reversals had occurred. A lot of scientists will tell you that, that uh, magnetic reversals occur very slowly over thousands of years. But I – I've put uh, references in, in the book in Magnetic Reversals and Evolutionary Leaps that show that some reversals occurred in as short a time as 30 days. And, and the, one of the studies that I'm thinking of is there was a, uh, a study of, of a volcanoes on, on Steens Mountain in south central Oregon. And the way the, the scientists checked this out, essentially, and, and, and I'm – I'm simplifying it, but what they can do is they can drill a hole into the into the lava, into the into these ancient rocks, and then they can drop a compass down into that hole, into that hole, into that rock, and they'll see which way was north at the time. Well, these scientists from from California came up to Steens Mountain and they drilled holes at the edge of the lava flow, and then they drilled holes in the center of the lava flow. And they discovered that on the edge of the lava flow, their their compasses pointed one direction, but in the center of the lava flow, pointed in a different direction, which means that the magnetic field changed during the difference in time it took for the edge to cool as opposed to the center. So they're saying their their guess was that the magnetic reversal could have occurred in as short as 30 days. There's a that was a study uh, Mankin and Cohen Prabo I think it was it was done back in the 90s. Then there's a later study done since then uh, of uh, of a magnetic field reversal in in a mountain in Nevada where they they figure it happened that the magnetic reversal occurred at the rate of one degree per week. So again, that is very very fast. So it's, but again, I, I, I a lot of scientists disagree with that. There's there's uh, there's still a lot to learn about magnetic reversals. I'm glad we're we're defining these terms, and I want you to define another term in a minute. But I want to ask you, since we we're talking about magnetic reversals, you may have heard the headlines last year: shifting position of magnetic north requires Tampa Airport to rearrange runways. Did Did you see that piece of news last year? I saw that. Also, they had to. Uh, what they had to do is they had to shut down the runway while they replaced the signs because right. there's signs that tell which way the pilot to tell them which what to align with. Right. They also had to do that in Oregon uh, because the magnetic north pole is moving quite rapidly, and and the rate of that movement has picked up. Then. Since we're talking about this, can you define it? Because we know magnetic reversal, but magnetic excursion, or as some paleontologists call it, aborted reversals. What's the difference between both terms? Well, the a, a lot of papers were, that you will read about magnetic reversals, they will tell you that the last magnetic reversal occurred 780,000 years ago at the Brunhess-Mata-Yuma magnetic uh, reversal. 
that is the last major reversal. But, but I think they are ignoring excursions. Magnetic excursions sometimes last as short as 500 years to up to 5,000 years. And so when you're, when you're going through uh, uh, geological strata that has accumulated over millions of years, it is very easy to miss something that only lasted for 500 years. But magnetic excursions are times when the Earth's magnetic field moved all the way south and then moved back after like 500 years, or sometimes it moved partway south and then moved back. Sometimes it moved partway south and fluctuated and moved back. Now, these magnetic excursions, which, which as you mentioned, some, some scientists call them aborted reversals, these magnetic excursions, I have found evidence of these, that they recur in a cycle about every 11,500 years. There was the Gothenburg magnetic reversal of 11,500 years ago. There was the Mono Lake magnetic reversal of, of 23,000 years ago. There was a Lake Mungo magnetic reversal 33,500 years ago. By the way, that's when the, uh, that's when the, uh, Neanderthal went extinct, Lachamp magnetic reversal, Blake magnetic reversal. There's been, there have been, I think like 12 of these excursions that have been documented just in the last couple million years alone. So I think we'll find a lot more as, because when I read the paperwork, scientists will find a magnetic reversal where it's not supposed to be. And so what they'll do is they'll just kind of shove it into where they think it should be. Mm. And, and I'm thinking that eventually they'll realize that maybe their dates were right. Maybe there is a lot more reversals than that, that they're, they're just ignoring. Is it possible for science to look at the last magnetic reversal and, and determine when future reversals will occur? And if so, when is the next one coming? Well, in the book, I say I think we're headed for it now, because if they do occur every 11,500 years, which I'm, I'm showing that they do, then the, then the next one is due. And, you know, when the book came out, especially when the first book came out, when Not By Fire But By Ice came out, uh, people laughed a little bit. You know, they said, they said the next magnetic reversal would be 2,000, 5,000 years away. But just the last year, and I don't, I don't think this is in, in the book because this happened since the, the book came out, is just last year on, on the 17th of January, the British Geological Survey announced that we could now be headed into a magnetic reversal. And so that validates the premise of both of my books. But the way, the, the reason I say that is, They've been watching what's called the South Atlantic Anomaly uh, as, as the Earth's internal magnetic field is rapidly weakening in this region. I mean, they, they, they know it's weakening, and they think it may be early evidence of a forthcoming reversal. Now, they, they just don't know quite enough about it. So what they're doing, this is a British Geological Survey, they are actually opening – a South Atlantic Anomaly and South Georgia Magnetic Observatory on, on the island in South Georgia. And they're going to be studying this. But anyway, it's, I mean, we're, we're talking real science here. They're saying that we could be headed for the next magnetic reversal right now. Now, to put things in practical terms, 
Can you paint a picture for us and tell us what would happen to the planet and the flora and fauna when the next magnetic reversal occurs? Uh, well, if, if, if you want to hear, well, it's, it's a little doom and gloom, but it's not because, because humans have certainly survived this before. But what I look at is, is during previous magnetic reversals, there's been an uh, increase in the amount of, of, uh, of beryllium-10 that rains down onto our planet, and that's, that's radioactive. There's been an increase in strontium that rains down into our, onto our planet, and that's, that's radioactive. So we're looking at the mutation things there. But another big thing that I fear that could happen and surprisingly, I, I thought this was going to get a lot of attention. So far, it, it hasn't. But during the last magnetic reversal, 11, about 11,500 years ago, that's when the Carolina Bays were formed. And f for people who don't know what those are, Carolina Bays are huge holes that were blasted into the ground across the United States about 11,500 years ago at the Gothenburg magnetic reversal. And when I say huge holes, some of these holes are an acre in size, but some of these holes that, that have punched into the ground are as much as seven miles across. In other words, they're bigger than a city. And these holes were there. I mean, there's, they're, They've been carbon dated. They were blasted into the ground about 12,000 years ago. There are more than 2 million of these holes blasted into the ground all at the same time about 12,000 years ago. I fear that the same thing could happen again. Now, these Carolina bays, uh, what they do, if, if you're on a ground and you see a Carolina bay, all it, it looks like a swamp. And that's what they're named for is, is uh, bay trees that are in these swamps, that have grown in these swamps. But back in the 30s, back when, when airplanes began to come, come out and, and when uh, uh, aerial photography began, they'd be able to take pictures. They took pictures of these things from the air and they began to realize that all of these swamps were so-called swamps, that they were all elliptical. And that that uh, they were all oriented north to south, and that some of them actually overlapped each other. By the way, you can go onto Google Earth and you can see these things for yourself. This is not something I'm making up. They're there. They're still there today. But anyway, they they've studied these. They the holes are only twenty feet, twenty to fifty feet deep. So it's hard to tell what made them. But I think that explosions in the sky during the magnetic reversal created those Carolina Bays. If you have any listeners who live near a Carolina Bay, you know, they'll be probably be interested in this. They're, these Carolina Bays are all over the United States, uh, mainly on the, uh, on the East Coast. If you, if you go to Google Earth and, and you zero in on Fayetteville, North Carolina, for instance, and, and uh, look as if you were about 18 miles up, you can start to see these Carolina Bays. I wrote about these being in the United States, but uh, I've received emails from people in Australia who have identified what looked like a uh, Carolina Bays in Australia. I've, I've received emails from people in, in, in Alaska who have seen the same sort of thing there. I have seen, I've received emails from people in Siberia who've seen the same thing there. So it's uh, it looks like it's something that's happened all over the world.
And when I think of reversals, I think of the people who are listening to us who are paying attention. Uh, the airport in Tampa that's changing the the the, the airport lines to to reorient them. Uh, all the 2012 talk, the the Mayans, not saying the world's going to end, but the end of an age and the the beginning of another one. I always wondered if it's because of a magnetic reversal or a polar shift that the Mayans couldn't see the constellations because when the planet switches. We can't see the constellations, therefore we cannot make the, the calendars. Do you see a correlation here? You know, when I wrote the first book, I had not heard of the, the Mayan calendar. I, I based it totally on, on the science that I was able to find. I'm not going to discount that, but I really haven't studied the Mayan calendar or, or, the, or that that information very much. I, I'm just going to say, I don't base it on that, but I'm not going to say it's wrong. That's fine. That's fine. And the reason why I say this is because it's like you're throwing dice. You cannot say what numbers there there will be unless it stops. So if there will be a, a, a magnetic reversal or a polar shift, the Earth would change, and therefore we won't be able to pinpoint the constellations until the proverbial dies stop. So we would have to wait until the pieces fall together so that we could create a new calendar, if you will. But I understand that's not an area of, of focus. Well, one one of the things I'd like to be clear on is that, you know, I, I read things about pole shift. And I, I, as near as I can tell, when people are talking about pole shift, they're talking about the earth flipping upside down. I am not talking about the earth flipping upside down. I don't think it does. I think it's it's just that magnetic north moves south. So to me, the constellations should remain in the same in the same place. However, I have read a lot of, of Indian lore where they talk about uh, the stars falling out of the sky uh, which, which if the Indian lore is correct, then then that would make it like maybe the Earth did did flip. So, I don't know the answer to that yet. And you know, when we look at places around the world, for example, the Yonaguni pyramids that are under sea, either they were built with them under sea, or there was no water in that area of Japan at one point. Do you think this happened during or prior to a magnetic reversal? Well, one of the things is uh, I've seen pictures of the of the underground cities. I don't know if there's one in Japan, but I've seen pictures of those mm-hmm. underwater pictures, and I believe that's totally possible. That goes back to my previous book, Not by Fire But by Ice. During ice ages – when when Canada is covered with two miles of ice and so much of the of the north is covered with two, up to two miles thick of ice, the moisture to and precipitation to build those ice sheets had to come from somewhere. And it came from the oceans. So that during the very depth of the last ice age, the oceans were actually 370 feet lower mm. than they are today. Uh, and, and for instance, uh, the Bering Strait was above water. Uh, uh, the Bering Strait is only about 270 feet deep at its deepest point. So during the last ice age, that means the Bering Strait was above water. Uh, a lot of areas, uh, oh, for instance, the, the east coast of the United States, uh, the shoreline in New Jersey was a hundred miles further out to sea, so mammoths would have been 
roaming valleys that are now under, you know, under 300, 270 feet of water, 300 feet of water. So I absolutely believe that those cities could be there simply because of the Ice Age cycle. So during the dinosaur time, the, the Jurassic era, flowers and hardwood trees or angiosperms didn't exist. This has Darwin very puzzled, and he called it an, abomin an abominable mystery. And marine life expanded to paleontologists call it an invisible hand of creation must have been at work. What do they mean by that? I thought paleontologists were scientists. Well, some somehow creation occurred. Uh, because because there was nothing there like the, the angiosperms you're, like you're talking about, those are the leafy trees, is that they didn't exist. And then all of a sudden, they came. And, and uh, well, like there's one uh, British geologist, uh, uh, Derek Ager, he said, the history of any one part of the earth, like the life of a soldier, consists of long periods of boredom and short <laughs> periods of terror. And that's what we're talking about. Those short periods of terror, that's, that's when I see the evolutionary leaps take place. And so not, not just with humans, but yes, with trees, with, with plants, uh, with ferns, uh, anything, any, any living thing on this planet, I think during a magnetic reversal is when it is going to mutate. And so you can call it the hand of God, you can call it mutation, uh, whatever you want to call it, but but there is there is a created creation process going on there. I just find it interesting that scientists usually they, they, they like to explain things things scientifically may say that may say that uh, an invisible hand of creation has been at work must have been at work. But every ge ge geological era shows dramatic changes in, in plant life. Did something happen that changed the the genetic makeup? And if so, what was it? Well, I think that we're going back to uh, to the uh, the radioactivity that spews onto our planet, uh, because the mutations not only by and we'll get to this too, I hope, but uh, not only did radioactivity pour onto our planet, but so did carbon. And carbon, tremendous amounts of carbon rain onto our planet at magnetic reversals. We're talking uh, soot. We're talking nano diamonds. We're talking buckyballs. We're, we're just talking all sorts of, of of carbon rains onto the planet. So, uh, but but going back to the to the to the reversal. When that magnetic reversal occurs and our magnetosphere is no longer protecting us, we have those spikes. For instance, 11,000 to 12,000 years ago, that's when magnetic intensity fell dramatically. And, and we had spikes in radioactive beryllium, spikes in, in radioactive car carbon-14. And we're talking four to five times normal. Also... Uh, and this this comes from uh, Dr. Richard Firestone, who who wrote a book, uh, co-authored a book with Alan West, "Cosmic Cycles of a Catastrophe." But they discovered in the soils in Michigan, they discovered radioactivity levels two thousand times higher than normal about twelve thousand years ago. Now, they are trying to to blame this on a meteor, 
but I'm seeing that it happened during the magnetic reversal. If it was a meteor, then do we have a meteor coming around every 11,500 years? And, and if, if, we're, if it was a meteor, how come we don't find any meteoritic uh, uh, debris anywhere dated to the same time? So anyway, that's, that's what I saw. For instance, uh, 23,000 years ago, there were spikes in radioactive beryllium and, and radioactive carbon-14. And that's when uh, that there was a mass extinction. The mammoths were clobbered. The European forest elephant disappeared. And magnetic intensity fell time, 10 times faster than normal. 33,500 years ago, there were spikes in radioactive beryllium, spikes, spikes in radioactive carbon-14, at least twice normal, giant floods at the same time. And, and by the way, this is when it seems to trigger ice ages, too. But that's when the, the Neanderthal disappeared. Prior to that, there was a Lachamp magnetic reversal. And, and, and again, magnetic intensity fell to less than 15% of today. So it, it fell a long ways. Again, spike in radioactive beryllium. Again, a spike in, in carbon-14, uh, two to three times normal. So there's that cycle there approximately every 11,500 years. And that's what I'm worried about coming now. And there are areas around the world, especially in the Middle East, and you probably know this, in the, the Sinai Peninsula, areas of Libya, that are almost like glass, almost as if a nuclear bomb was detonated there. And sometimes I wonder, did we evolve technologically back then and we had nuclear weapons or something else happened? Well, I suppose we could have had, uh, uh, what is it, Zechariah Sitchin? Exactly. It that way. I, I've, boy, it's been a long time since I've read his books. So I, I don't know. But the other thing, of course, that I think is that, 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 they could have come from giant explosions in the sky like Tunguska mm -hmm. because I, I think that uh, those Carolina Bays, for instance, that I was talking about earlier, I'm, I'm saying that there were tens of thousands of Tunguska-like explosions in the sky that, that gouged those holes into the earth. I sure wouldn't have been wanting to stand at ground zero when mm -hmm. that happened. <laughs> but that's that's what I'm thinking occurred, and I'm thinking that those same kinds of Tunguska-like explosions could have fused that that desert sand into glass, the, the way you're talking about. And when we think of Tunguska, we we don't think of the magnitude. We think of uh, Hiroshima, and this is about what one thousand times more or more powerful than Hiroshima. Yes. Uh, Tunguska, for, for anyone who doesn't know, that happened in the early 1900s, I think 1906, 1908, somewhere there. But uh, it was a huge blast in the sky, about five miles up over the sky in over Tunguska in, in Russia. And this blast flattened uh, a huge area, bigger than Manhattan, a, a huge area of trees, three-foot diameter trees, just knocked them over like matchsticks. Uh, there was one farmer 36 miles away who happened to be watching it. The, the blast had burned his, his ears. But uh, these, uh, no one exactly knows what that blast over Tunguska, uh, what caused it. All they, they do know that it happened. And, you know, that was back back before people could, could travel the way they do today. It took two years before scientists were actually able to get to the Tunguska location to actually study it. And so by that time, 
and at that time they probably didn't even know what radioactivity was or what what to look for but there they did notice that there was a big uh fluctuation in the earth's magnetic field at the time but again there are there are some there are scientists who say <laughs> a serious scientist who say it was came from an exploding uh flying saucer which <laughs> I have a little hard time to, to buy that one. But then there are other scientists who say it was decidedly an atomic explosion. And so, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm agreeing. It probably was an atomic explosion. I would expect to see lots of those during a magnetic reversal. And, and just imagine the magnitude. I mean, it's almost as if you're standing in your home in London and you can see Paris burning from from london that's how how, how large the explosion and, and the 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 illumination was wasn't it oh yes well there were there were were people uh i think like a thousand miles away because of the all of the uh glowing in the sky that continued for for the next few months there were people in london who were actually able to to read their newspapers at midnight by the glow of the sky so something Something definitely big did go on there. And, and I understand that you're a scientist, you're an architect, you like to see things properly measured. But here's something that makes me wonder regarding the, the species that disappeared during these reversals. The same number of different species reappear with no known ancestors, and the numbers of species has remained remarkably constant for almost 600 million years. I'm going to say it, Robert. Is there a possibility that these new species are being brought here from somewhere else, meaning outside of our planet? I'm not willing to go there. Uh, no, I think that they're 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 being created by mutation of species that already existed on the planet, and and uh, I, I, you can call it creation if you want, I guess. But I but I think it's coming from those species that are already here. Uh, you could call it evolution, I guess, if you wanted, as long as, as you're willing to acknowledge that it, that it happens incredibly fast. And I don't think that they are evolving to fit the circumstances. I, I, think, that, I think that they're born with whatever it is. You know, for instance, giraffes, did, did, did they evolve their long necks in order to eat the leaves on tall trees? That's right. Or, and, and this is what I think is more likely, were they born with those long necks and they had to adapt to what they were given? Uh, I, I think they, they decided to eat leaves on the tall trees after they were giving those long necks. You know, does the emu have three toes for a purpose? Then, then why does the ostrich have only two? Why does the rhinoceros have a horn? And why do cows have two horns? Why does the javelina have short cusps? Tusk, why does the mammoth have long tusks? I mean, what evolutionary purpose did those giant tusks, tusks fulfill? I think they were an oops. I think they, they just happened, and they were a burden with which the, lamin, the mammoth had to learn to cope. But here's, you know, the, here's the interesting thing. Sorry for interjecting, but you had the, the whales that at one point had hind legs. Yes, 50 million years ago. Uh, the whales walked on land. That's right. And then we supposedly come from the ocean, are, are the, the inverse. Now, the, we de-evolved. Well, yeah, yeah, because, I mean, if it's so wonderful that we evolved. Now, have uh, whales, are they devolving? I mean, are they going back to the ocean? Uh, 
you know, they were once able to walk on ground and on, on flat land and, and now they're back they're swinging, swimming in the ocean. Now, again, I, I think it's, I think it's accidental. A lot of it is just plain accidental. I don't think that, that we evolve, uh, you know, we we change a little bit. You know, the 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 moths in London that a uh, um, hundred years ago, when there was so much coal burning in in London, the there were some moths that were born that were black, and and they were able to to survive better because they were able to to hide in the in the black skies, and so they changed, but. Their outsides changed, but their species didn't change. They were still the same species. They just changed colors. Uh, so they adapted, but I don't think they evolved. And, you know, some animals are now one-tenth or one-twentieth of their original size. As you say, and I, and I love the humor, as you say, one-tenth would be Shaquille O'Neal, the size of a Barbie, and one-twentieth would be Mike Tyson, the size of an angry mouse standing on its hind legs. To what do you attribute? The reduction in size. <laughs> yeah, I, I just go back to to not that they were. I mean, if you're going to evolve, you'd want to. I would think you'd want to evolve into something bigger, and 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 at that magnetic reversal, things uh, uh, changed to be much smaller. Uh, and so again, I I'll go back to the magnetic reversal as as being the cause of it. And here's something interesting, uh, Robert, and I bet you know this. Let me quote E.W. Feisenmayer, or Feisenmayer, one of the scientists who recovered and studied a mammoth that was found at the river Berezovska in the early 1900s. He wrote, quote, Its death must have occurred very quickly after its fall, for we found half-chewed food still in its mouth between the back teeth and on its tongue, which was in good pres preservation. The food consisted of leaves and grasses, some of the latter carrying seeds. We could tell from these that the mammoth must have come to its miserable end in the autumn, unquote. The evidence of undigested food in the stomach and seed pods still in the mouth of many of the specimens suggests that neither starvation nor exposure are likely. Do you think this happened instantaneously? What I'm thinking, and I, and I, and I do write about the Beresovka mammoth in... Um and not by fire, but by ice too. But but uh, what I see having happened is that giant snowstorms buried those mammoths. You know, there's um, there have been scientists estimate there there are more than one million mammoths in Siberia that are that may still be buried beneath the ice. Many of those mammoths have been discovered standing up, still standing up, encased in the ice. And many of those mammoths, yes, have been found with, with fresh food still in their mouths. Uh, one of the mammoths, when scientists uh, uh, dissected it, went into it, they, they found the, the, the food that was, you know, that was still fresh and their meat of the mammoth was still dark red and fresh looking as if it had been uh, frozen quite quite quickly because i guess when you freeze something very slowly why well, it still has a chance to rot as it's doing and but this one uh, froze very quickly they fed the meat to their dogs and their dogs loved it and and no ill effects so when they start talking about mammoths being buried in the ice standing up, I have one chapter in that, that first book called Not 
nine stories of ice, nine stories of snow a day, because I'm thinking that like literally 90 feet of snow a day during snow blitz, because that's how ice ages begin, is is not not with uh, ice slowly grinding out of the north, not with huge glaciers slowly grinding out of the north, but with what's called a snow blitz, where it just snows and snows and snows and, and traps the animals and the trees and whatever else in the ice. So survival of the fittest was really not the issue. And I'm talking about the other species that, that yes. got lost. And one species didn't kill another one to survive in its entirety. So if there was no competition, no battle, what happened then? Well, I think it's survival of the luckiest. Uh, and, and the other thing, too, is, is that uh, the animals that were, that were slow, the... the uh, the couch potatoes, if you will, the couch potatoes seem to survive better than the animals that have a, a high met metabolic requirement for food. Mm -hmm. And I th and I think a large part of that would have to be that the animals who who are more active now being more active, being a, having a high metabolism would normally uh, have you survive better. In, in survival of the fittest, that would be the animal that would, would survive the best. But when you look at the record, the turtles have, have evolved much more slowly than other animals. Uh, uh, the slow-moving animals, I think, were able to survive because they didn't have to run out into the Holocaust to get food. Whereas the high, highly metabolic animals, they had to eat. They had to go out there every day and get and get their food, and that means that they were bathed more and more in that radioactivity. So they just had a much better chance of of being mutated into something else. So those that can go into hibernation, for example, those tend to survive more because they don't have to go out there and consume food that could be radioactive, for example. Exactly, exactly. And with the dinosaurs, I always wonder, since, you know, many of them are too large to, to go into caves, were they the first ones to, to die off when, well, allegedly the, the, the uh, meteor uh, struck Yucatan. Do you think that because they have to stay outside, maybe the only cover they have is maybe a huge tree? Is that why they were the first ones to go? I think it is, and and because again, it was the slow-moving animals that survived better. Also, and this is a this is a a big one that, that so many paleontologists haven't answered, but uh, uh, freshwater animals survived better. During the dinosaur extinction, uh, I forget the exact number, but there was like 76% of the larger uh, species went extinct. And by larger, the, the animals where the uh, adults weighed more than 50 pounds, whereas only 14% of freshwater animals went extinct. And so I'm thinking that that freshwater somehow protected them. And that goes back to a question that you asked way at the beginning when you were when you were talking about uh, uh, the Akari insects and the uh, uh, being exposed to the electric current is that uh, saltwater animals during the the KT extinction during the dinosaur extinction the saltwater animals went extinct at a much higher rate than the freshwater well saltwater is is much more electric, electrically conductive. 
And so I'm thinking that though during the magnetic reversals, as our electric field must have been fluctuating at the same time, I'm thinking that those electric currents were going through the oceans uh, much more than they would have been going through the, the, the freshwater. And that's why only 14% of the freshwater animals went extinct. Well, that's so true. I always think about that. The, you know, why do we have salt in the ocean? It becomes more conductive. Yes. But you say that we, anatomically modern humans, are blindingly new, that we existed for only 200,000 years or so. The average Cro-Magnon, properly trained, could have handled computers with the best of us, and they had slightly larger brains than we do. We've grown from perhaps 100,000 people with access to more than 4 billion with bombs, rockets, ships, cities, TVs, and computers, and all without substantial genetic change. Where is evolution, Robert? Well, that uh, I don't want to take credit for that. That came from Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard, Harvard that quote. Uh, I love that quote, so I put it in there, but I don't want to take credit for it. Um, well, it it goes right back, I think, to the to the magnetic reversals. Is that uh, uh, during that magnetic reversal, the the radioactivity pours onto our planet, and and there we go again with the mutation, not not with that slow evolution because it's not slow. It it, it when it does change, it changes incredibly fast. What about the larger brains back then? Our brains are smaller now. Now, I, I don't understand that disconnect. Well, I don't know whether that's good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's just change. I, I, that's why I don't think that we're necessary, necessarily, I guess religious uh, dogma would have us that, that we are evolving into something ever better, ever better, ever better. I don't think it's necessarily better. I, you know, I, I don't know what, which way we'll go next. Will we be get getting dumber, or will we be getting smarter? The the big thing I can say is that 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 we have survived it before. Our, our ancestors certainly, uh, you know, we've been around for through a lot of these magnetic excursions, and although it it probably killed lots of us, there are some of us that that. Some of our ancestors obviously survived or we wouldn't be here. I'd like to somehow, someday, be able to figure out what it is that our ancestors did that helped them survive. Well, that's a very good point because on the second hour, that's the one thing that I want to discuss because we focus, and even I, I'm guilty of this. I'm always wondering what really killed the dinosaurs. And instead of focusing so much on what killed them, we should be wondering or finding those traces and clues that made those who survived survive, right? Yes, because because they did. So I, that's that's one of the things that that I'm hoping that 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 science will be looking into is is I don't really know the answer, but I do know that that uh, that that we made it. I mean. If we, you know, if, if we're just simply in undercover in a house somewhere, is that going to help us survive? Uh, if we boil our water, is that going to help? I've had people say that no, boiling water won't help get rid of the radiation. But there's there's things that, you know, our ancestors, they didn't understand all of this, all of what we understand, and yet they somehow survived it. So what did they do? I don't I don't know the answer, but I'd like to. Exactly. And, and I bet, uh, Robert, if Darwin were alive, you'd love to debate him, wouldn't you? 
<laughs> I'm not so sure of that, <laughs> but uh, uh, I'd, I'd certainly want to give him a few questions to answer. Well, as you know, there's the intelligent design camp and the the evolution camp. Where do you stand? I'm not on the intelligent design. I, I think it's accidental. Uh, so I, I, I probably can make people angry on both sides. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so tell us how to get in touch with your work, buy your books. There's uh, evolutionaryleaps.com is is the website that pretty well sticks with with this subject. And then I also have iceagenow.info uh, where I'm keeping track of, of, the, of the fact that it looks like we're headed into an ice age right now. I update both of them. I update iceagenow.info probably more often. The books are available from both of those websites. And it's so true. Today, in the news, four feet of hail in Texas. Incredible. It seems that our weather keeps changing. And, and your position of Ice Age now may be more true than many, many scientists out there tend to dismiss. But when we come back, we're here with Robert Felix, and you're listening to Veritas. Stay tuned. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
is David Sarita, and you're listening to Veritas Radio.